0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman.
1: I'm Chris Beam.
2: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with Judge Jeffrey Sutton, who serves on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals and is the author of the book, Who Decides States as Laboratories of Constitutional Experimentation. And, you know, we did this interview, or I did this interview with Judge Sutton just a few days after the abortion referendum in Kansas back in August, I believe that was. And it was just a really interesting time. Time to be thinking about state constitutions and state courts and, you know, the role of the states and even to take a step back farther than that, the role that federalism plays in, in American democracy.
0: Yeah, Jenna, so it's so cool to have such a distinguished jurist as our guest today and uh, really interesting and fun book to read, really readable book, I thought as well. I think Chris, Chris agrees with me on that. I thought it might be useful to start out by just kind of laying out how federalism is established in the Constitution. I think it might be useful for people as the, uh, as, uh, the judge goes into talking about the specifics of state constitutions and some of his perspectives on where responsibility where responsibility should lie. And I I mean, it's useful for people, and this comes up, I think, in, in his discussion, to keep in mind that the Constitution is written in the context of... You know The framers wanting to move away from what they saw as excessive democracy in the states. They looked, Madison in particular, did not look kindly upon state legislatures. Uh, he referred to state legislators as myopic backcountry demagogues. They were concerned by actions that were going on within the states. They were concerned that the state governments weren't strong enough to put down things like Shays' Rebellion. That was very threatening to banking interests in the states and to the stability of the state. And so they wanted to make, build a stronger central government than existed under the uh, Articles of Confederation. But they also wanted to preserve the states as independent sovereigns. And, you know, it's not, it's not an innocuous choice that they're called states. I mean, we often think of states, especially at that time, as independent you know, as independent countries, essentially, and so within the Constitution, they go to great lengths to try and allocate responsibilities to the state and national government. To allocate responsibilities to the state and national government, and some of it is more straightforward than others, uh, as the judge uh, will will note in his opening comments. For example, there are numerous enumerated powers given to the Congress. And these are powers that exist solely for the national government. We refer to them as, say, as the enumerated powers. But everything else is really left to the states. And of course, we have constitutions that protect our rights at both the national level and at the state levels. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that the judge's interest in this book is largely in the 50 different state constitutions. Oh, no.
1: This is a really fascinating book, and I learned a lot that I did not know. I think your your summary was really really good and and solid. What he's talking about is how these uh, how federalism manifests itself in the relationship between state constitutions and the federal constitution. How they're different, how they organize, you know, the principles by which each body is governed and how Uh, they differ in terms of the power that they give to the the individual citizen to, you know, how democratic they are and how they are amended. And, you know, as when he's talking about states as laboratories, he's obviously getting, he's referencing Brandeis' famous quote that, you know, the states are laboratories of democracy and they have this opportunity to take up questions that are, you know, important for that state, but also implicate all the other states. And so, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, with gay rights, Vermont, Hawaii, I- Iowa uh, took on these questions and, and made inroads towards establishing what eventually became, you know, a uh, uh, a universal national federal right, right for gay marriage. You know, you also see it in terms of policy, right? You know, Colorado legalized the sale of marijuana and then, you know, States saw, wow, this is a really good way to make tax revenue. Okay. Well, we're going to try that too. Anyway. I mean, so that's where that phrase comes from. And, and you have, his question is how does that experimentation play out in the, in the state judicial apparatus, particularly the state Supreme Courts. Yeah. And so, they're running off of their state constitution, which is distinctive and, and, and different. But there's really a fundamental
0: difference, at least to jurists who come from a more uh, liberal perspective than, than this judge anyway, in that the issue with gay marriage, with abortion and some of these other issues is that there is a federal right and if there is a constitutional protection of a right, then states can't legislate against that right. They can't mm-hmm. override that right. But getting into these differences also on the state constitutions, he highlights, Chris, uh, that he sees the state constitutions in a sense as being more democratic because they can be changed
1: more easily. More easily, is that right? A first mm-hmm. Statement. Yeah. Not,
0: not more democratic because they necessarily give more democratic rights or outcomes, right? Well, maybe that's the right? two, but more democratic because they can be changed.
1: Right. So my point is just that, you know, how you, what this means in practice is always a difficult, vexed, and combative question, right? Because you have two sources of power that are pushing against each other. And I remember in, uh, when, I think it was in a Ob- Obama, and I don't remember the, the attorney general of Texas's name, but he said, every morning I wake up and I look for ways to sue the federal government. And and so that is an example of this kind of push back and forth. But with, but with respect to the constitutions of the states, for him, the big thing is uh, amendments. And we should probably talk about that just a little bit. The amendment process within the U.S. Constitution is Incredibly difficult, right? You have to pass the uh, both houses by uh, two-thirds majorities, and then you have to pass thirty-eight state legislatures. You have to pass three-fourths of the legislatures. Well, that's one route. There's two routes. Right, right. Of course, but but that's that's the only route that's been used so far, right? So I think, I mean, you know, there's a lot in this book. It's a big book. And <laughs> and we're just laying out some of the basics. But um, I think this is a good enough uh, introduction to go to uh, Jenna's interview now.
2: Yeah, so let's do that. Let's go to the interview with Jeffrey Sutton. Jeffrey Sutton, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Yes, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
2: So this is a very interesting time to be talking about state constitutions, given some of the things that we've seen in in recent weeks, and and we'll continue to see as we head through the rest of this election cycle. But before we get to that, I want to just take a step back. Your most recent book, Who Decides, takes a bit of a different view or approach to the idea of laboratories of democracy, which I know is a concept that is very familiar to our listeners. We talk about it on this show quite often. But if you wouldn't mind just kind of setting that up for us, how do you think about the laboratories of democracy framework when it comes to state courts, state constitutions?
3: Yeah, sure. Well, it really is an interesting time to be talking about states as laboratories. And I guess I would start with thing number one, which is we have a uh, complicated relationship as Americans with states and federalism, and it's complicated because we've had periods, spells in American history where the state laboratories did not function very well. Uh, Jim Crow is uh, perhaps the leading example, and I think that really probably creates something of a bias slash preference in most Americans' minds for national solutions of course Americans are both impatient and strong-willed and they love national solutions when they are consistent with their worldviews and they're quite contemptuous of them when they are not and so that reminds me of Brandeis's justice Brandeis's wonderful insight about laboratories of democracy and you know, it's so hard to find anything that Americans agree about these days politically, but I actually think this is still one. And that's that if you have a new problem, let's let's talk about things that we all agree are problems. Opioids, data privacy, I suppose features of the pandemic. And there are parts of these problems that, you know, it's very hard to get up on a soapbox and say there's just one and only one answer. We'd love to have the opioids crisis behind us. We'd love to have a way to be more confident about data privacy. And what Brandeis says, and he's saying this back in the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s, is that when you have a new policy problem, uh, why not let a brave state take a shot at solving the problem? And if they develop a good or even winning insight, other states can follow it. And if a truth really emerges Then at that point, you nationalize your solution. Now, Brandeis, of course, was referring to state legislatures Mm -hmm. as the policy innovators. And you can take who decides in my earlier book, 51 Imperfect Solutions, and really reduce them to one insight, which is if we think ground-up development of legislative ideas is promising and useful... Before we nationalize anything, why aren't we taking the same view with respect to new constitutional rights? Now here, it's really important to clarify what I'm talking about. Sometimes the state and federal constitutions are very specific. They tell you just, it's like a recipe. They tell you just what the rule is, follow it, and you've complied. So to be president of the United States, you know, you got to be 35. That's, that's the way it works. And um, there's nothing to talk about. But there are other constitutional rights where there's plenty to talk about. Is a search unreasonable? Is punishment cruel and unusual? And especially with rights that are not in not enumerated, say, the concept of substantive due process. As to those types of problems, which I can attest as a judge, are very difficult to sort out, it's very strange that we still live in this top-down constitutional world where Litigants race to D.C., try to get the winner-take-all ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, if they win, wonderful. Um, Of course, if they lose, uh, not so wonderful. The, The key insight I'm trying to take from Brandeis is, you know, we have 50 state court systems. We have 50 state constitutions why not use the state courts as the initial innovators, Mm -hmm. initial laboratories of experimentation when it comes to the meaning of what processes do, when is a search unreasonable? It means there'll be less resentment and conflict once you have a national solution, if you have one. It probably promotes the best ideas as opposed to prematurely constitutionalizing something. So that's that's the basic idea, and it's a, you know, it's a really interesting time to be thinking about it because whatever one thinks about the current U.S. Supreme Court, it is a court that is a little less willing to take issues out of the democratic sphere, whereas in earlier courts, particularly in the 50s and 60s, that was something the U.S. Mm-hmm. Supreme Court was pretty comfortable doing, and so we're just living in this world where now you have two opportunities, not one, to protect rights you mm-hmm. fear.
2: Mm-hmm. And you, you also talk in the book about the democracy principle that, that manifests itself in the states every generation or so. Can you talk about that and, and maybe how it ties into the way that state constitutions can be amended and how that's, that's maybe easier than amending the federal constitution?
3: Yeah, the democracy principle, I have to give credit where credit's due. That phrase comes from Miriam Seifter and Jessica Bowman-Posen, two really terrific law professors who have written about state constitutions. And one of the things they note, and I quite agree with based on my own study of the issue, is that we have this remarkable contrast between the federal constitution, the way it sets up government, and the 50 state constitutions. The 50 state constitutions over American history from 1776 on just keep getting more democratic. Uh, So early in the 1800s, they start, they decide, well, we can vote for judges. And then they decide we can vote for different executive branch officials, attorney generals, secretaries of state, lieutenant governors. Uh, Then they decide we can have an initiative where we have direct democracy, where, you know, half the states permit the people in that state to either overrule a statute by a direct vote, or create a new constitutional amendment by a direct vote. And so you have this uh, trend line from 1776 to the present, where it just seems like every phase of American history, the states let their citizens vote on more things and more offices. And the same is true at the local government level as well. By contrast, the federal government is still fairly stuck in an 18th century model of government, which I'll call it Republican, not in the political party sense, but as not just pure democracy. And so it has an electoral college. It has two senators per state. Of course, judicial review is very non-democratic. But the key, the key, and, and, you know, we just vote for one president. We don't vote for an attorney general a secretary of state, a defense secretary. We don't have an initiative at the federal level. So you, and we don't vote for judges. So it's just such a wild concept that you could take Mississippi, Ohio, Colorado, and California and realize that those states have more in common with each other than they have with the United Mm -hmm. States, at least in terms of a constitution. And and that makes everybody laugh because they think if Mississippi, If the people of Mississippi and California want something, and they agree on the same solution, why wouldn't they be able to get it in the national constitution? And I think it's mainly because the national constitution is very hard to amend, whereas, and this is another pro-democratic point, the state constitutions are all much easier to amend, and most of them can be amended by a mere 51% vote, Mm -hmm. which is why... state constitutions they just keep changing with each kind of political era
2: yeah and you know to to bring things more toward to the present moment you, you you mentioned a few minutes ago that that states have you know over time become more democratic and there's it seems at least, you know, there's certainly a lot being written right now about the ways that states are maybe becoming less democratic. Whether that's through actions taken by the legislatures, or or even, you know, we're seeing several constitutional amendment questions regarding reproductive rights. Uh, some cases, the you know voters are asked to to affirm reproductive rights. In some cases, they're asked to to do. The opposite of that, depending on the on the state and how it's framed, but but I guess I I wonder if if you as you think about some of these more recent events, if you think that that you know consistent push towards states becoming more democratic holds true and and will hold true, or if there's perhaps cause for concern.
3: Yeah, well, I would say it's an open question, but there are two there are two U.S. Supreme Court decisions in the last three years that have really placed a spotlight on the states, states and state governments in general, state courts more particularly, state constitutions more particularly. So the two cases are Rucho and Dobbs. So Rucho is the extreme partisan gerrymandering case from 2019. And the short answer there is the court, U.S. Supreme Court, put up a big red stop sign and said, the federal constitution just does not provide a solution to this problem. If there are going to be solutions, it's either going to come from state constitutions, state courts, state legislatures, potentially Congress. But it's given the current language of the 14th Amendment, the court didn't think there was any role for it to play in curbing extreme partisan gerrymandering, even though I think all nine justices appreciated that it's been a problem, even a toxic problem in American government. Then the second big decision is, of course, the recent abortion ruling in Dobbs, where quite it's it's really a similar story. The court is putting up a big red stop sign and saying when it comes to abortion regulation and this substantive due process right that had been there for a while, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is just not going to play a role in that. It's going to be, quote, neutral with respect to regulations for or against abortion rights. And again, that puts a big, big spotlight on the states. And one of the things, and this is just a really simple point, but it's really important because I think most Americans aren't quite aware of it. In American government, if you care deeply about a constitutional right, personal liberty, privacy, property rights, you have two shots, not one. To limit what your state government does. So, if a state government enacts a law about abortion that you don't care for, and if the US Supreme Court says, you know, stop sign, we have no role to play, you still have a second shot. You know, it's just frankly, I mean, I hate to simplify it too much, but, you know, take American basketball. I mean, mm-hmm. when was the last time someone was awarded a two shot foul? Missed the first shot and didn't try the second shot. And that's what's going on. And so now we've seen that when you shift the accountability spotlight to the states, sometimes, you know, some good can be done and these laboratories of experimentation can try to customize solutions to local problems. And we'll see with abortion, you mentioned that there's some state constitutional amendments being proposed. It's really quite interesting that to date, we don't actually have any provisions in any state constitutions that directly protect a right to abortion. But we now have on the ballot, I'm not sure I can tell you all the states, but I think Vermont, maybe Michigan, maybe-
2: Yeah, Michigan. Uh, we just, just saw something in, in Kansas, of course, uh, earlier in the summer.
3: Yeah. So it's I, I guess it's Vermont, California, Michigan, New York, and, and there may be some others that are proposing- language to put an actual right to an abortion in the state mm-hmm. constitution. And that of course is exactly, you know, that's an example of the second shot. Each state has that right to do that. And, you know, you make the point about the Kansas vote. So the Kansas vote was a slightly different situation. That was a situation where the Kansas Supreme court before Dobbs. So a couple of years ago had construed the Kansas to process guarantees to protect a right, to abortion a right, to choose however one wants to put it. And in this recent initiative a few weeks ago, the people of Kansas had a chance to effectively overrule that decision, and they didn't by a pretty striking margin. So it shows, you know, even a state that's perceived as more conservative, it shows that on things like, I would say, both gerrymandering and abortion. Mm-hmm it's it's dangerous to predict too quickly how each state's going to deal with it
2: yeah uh, so you, you mentioned at the, the very beginning of our conversation the, the kind of bad taste in the mouths of, of Americans after about you know the, about the role of the states you know in the in the Jim Crow era and you know, following that era and I, I guess I wonder if there are some issues that maybe are not good candidates for this second shot approach or that, you really should be decided at, at a higher level. You know, I think we could say that, you know, issues regarding civil rights might be, might be one of them, but I wonder if, if you would put abortion in that category or, or if there are other things that may come down the pike in, in a similar manner that this is maybe not the, the best way to, to proceed.
3: So the one thing I just want to emphasize, because it's so central to both 51 and Perfect Solutions and Who Decides, is we have lived for the last 50, 60 years under what I would call the peril of a single story. And the peril of a single story, it's a little bit like how we can too quickly assume things about a person we meet for the first time. And as you get to know them, you learn there's a little more to them. And I think there's something similar going on with how we view constitutional rights in America. And the single story we've been living under for 60, 70 years is there's really just one guardian of our rights, this US Supreme Court. There's just one constitution that really protects us, the US Constitution. And the downside of single stories is they generate myths. Myth one is that. The U.S. Supreme Court always gets it right, and hmm. that's a very dangerous myth. I mean, it's hum- they're human beings. There's human foibles, and they're they're not always right. I mean, keep in mind that Brown versus Board of Education, which is arguably our greatest individual rights Supreme Court decision, doesn't correct a state mistake. It corrects right. a federal mistake. It ref- it corrects Plessy, the U.S. Supreme Court's prior decision. Buck versus Bell, the case that permitted states to impose involuntary sterilization on the so-called feeble-minded it is another obvious example that you know the US Supreme Court doesn't always get it right. One thing I love about the eugenics story is painful as the Buck versus Bell decision is no one appreciates that the state courts got that one right. At the same time Buck versus Bell was giving the green light to eugenics and involuntary sterilization the state courts overwhelmingly were saying, no, you can't do that. So the other myth is that the states always get it wrong. So we just, we really want to be careful about the assumption the national government always gets it right from the perspective of liberty and individual rights and mm-hmm. dignity, and the states always get it wrong. No, in fact, sometimes it's the reverse. So that's my that's my initial point. So the second point, what? how do we figure out what rights should be nationalized mm-hmm. and what shouldn't? I think what's really hard is when the constitution either doesn't mention the right at all, or it only refers to Mm -hmm. something in vague terms. And I think in those two settings, I don't have a problem with nationalization. I just feel like it takes us back to the Brandeis insight. Mm -hmm. Be careful what you wish for because remember, if you nationalize too quickly, you might nationalize in the wrong direction. I mean, you you might have one set of views about abortion But there's also, you know, rush to nationalization can lead to just exactly the opposite of the rule you want. You know, this is a good opportunity to compare guns and abortion. They tend, you tend not to have that many Americans that feel the same way about the two issues. They tend to divide us rather than pull us apart. But I do think gun regulation is a nice example of how states in general and state courts in particular can customize rights to local conditions i mean i mean is it not possible that gun regulation and weapon regulation in wyoming should look different mm-hmm. than in new york city is it not possible that even in a state like pennsylvania mm-hmm. you know, my family's from warren north northwest pennsylvania should is it not possible that you might have different Gun regulations in Warren, Pennsylvania, from Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Obviously, urban settings create more risk, and rural settings create a situation where there might be a culture of a hunting, fishing culture where it's you know it's fairly safe and and not too much, too many problems with you know lots of gun ownership and not many regulations. So, I think this nationalization point is really difficult. My my sense in talking about the issue with students and other, you know, Americans in general, is people want to nationalize the thing. It's like a, it's a proxy for what you love. You want to nationalize what you love and you hate the idea of nationalizing what you don't love. So people love federalism for what they don't love Mm -hmm. and they want nationalization for what they love. I'll just mention one other thing because we've been talking about courts Mm -hmm. and we have to be careful about remembering legislatures also play a big role. And this is another, if you ask me, myth about American government, that we think the best rights are the ones that come from the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And I would beg to differ on that point.
2: You know, the the other thing that, that we're seeing, uh, and I, I'm thinking here of uh, the work of a, a political scientist named Jake Grimbach, who has uh, a new book out called Laboratories Against Democracy, which looks at the ways that National politics is increasingly, you know, infiltrating, for lack of a better term, the the states, and you know, particularly on on culture war type of issues. And just read an article recently by Jane Mayer in the in the the New Yorker about your state of Ohio and the you know legislature passing policies that are out of step with with public opinion. Uh, we could easily have something similar here here in Pennsylvania, depending on the outcome of the, the governor's election. And so I, I guess I wonder if this this strategy of, of using, you know, more popular vote type of, of mechanisms to update the state constitution is perhaps a check on some of that about the, you know, legislature kind of act, acting in ways that, that are not consistent with what the, the majority of people say that they want in a given state.
3: Yeah, this this is a really important point that you know, so many of our debates at the national level are bleeding down at the local level, and the, the downside, and I'm the the criticism is really significant. The downside is what ends up happening instead of fifty one labs of experimentation, it's just two, right? It's just the two political parties, and you just look at their agendas and that's not experimentation at all. It's quite inconsistent with what Brandeis was talking about. And I do think probably the information age, the internet has facilitated this a little bit so that, you know, the Republican in a local town council is more attentive to the national public Republican agenda than Mm -hmm. the Republicans in this locality. So that's the concern. So a couple of responses. I, 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 I'm, I accept the concern, and I think it's something to watch out for. But a couple of just responses. Uh, Response number one is it doesn't defeat the two shots point. Hmm. So be it. You still get a second shot. So the the local Republican, the local Democrat that is unhappy that the U.S. Supreme Court didn't give them relief can still try to get relief locally. So the two shots are better than one. Hmm. Still applies no matter whether that's true. And then the second point is I, I think the concern is valid, but I do think it's overstated. And this go, I'll just go back to the guns example. It may be the case that Democrats and Republicans throughout the country have slightly similar positions on pro or anti-gun regulation, but it's also the case that there's lots of customizing going on throughout the country. And that customization is not just two types. And, and then the, the last point is, you know, there are lots of truly local issues. I mean, they're just truly local. There's not a national position on water access. I mean, that's a, that's a very Western phenomenon. In Ohio, it's just not as big a deal because in Pennsylvania, we don't, we don't have any shortage of rivers and lakes. So there are still plenty of these local cu- culture, custom ones.
2: So as we look ahead here, uh, I know that we were we were talking about the the Rucho case and and issues of, of gerrymandering earlier this coming term the Supreme Court will be hearing the Moore v Harper case. Uh, I wonder how you think about that case and its its potential outcomes in in the the context of, of what we were talking about before with the the role of of states and and redistricting whether that could potentially change anything that's already in place.
3: Yeah. So as a, as a federal judge, I have to be a little careful talking mm. about a case that's pending at the court. But I, I can say this, that it's a, it's a tricky case. It, um, the U.S. Constitution refers to the authority of state legislatures to promulgate election regulations. And the question is what that means and what ro- role that leaves for state courts, either in construing the state legislation or what role that leaves for state courts in construing their state constitutions to limit state legislation. And it's it's just a really tricky issue. Uh, the court, there's been quite a few, including from Pennsylvania, there have been quite a few opportunities for the U.S. Supreme Court to look at this over the last several election cycles. And there have been uh, dissents, concurring opinions, where the court, you can tell the justices are trying to figure out when they need to solve this. And I guess they've decided to do it outside this election cycle. So I suppose that's good. It'll be for the next election cycle, which strikes me as perhaps wise, you know, to figure it out outside a pending election. Mm -hmm. But yes, I think it'll be really helpful because I think state court judges have been trying to sort this out. And and it's it's obviously a federal constitutional issue that's got to be resolved at one point, at some point. And it's really about what role state courts have in limiting or construing these state election laws. So it'll be really consequential. Mm-hmm. I think Pennsylvania and North Carolina are two of the two yeah. states that have had issues percolate up over this. And so mm-hmm. obviously those states will care about it. But Arizona's had some cases that have impacted this. Ohio has, I suspect <laughs> all 50 states will be pretty engaged in respond to that decision.
2: Well, Jeff, you've given us a lot to think about, and I hope listeners will uh, pick up your books, 51 Imperfect Solutions, and who decides to dive deeper into these topics as we continue to think about the role of states and federalism moving forward. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Jen, and great to be with you.
1: So I think I mean really interesting um interview brings up a lot of um meaty topics but one that I wanted to at least start with Michael was this his discussion about the the uh, r- the same kind of uh federal fighting that goes on between the federal government and, or federalism that goes on between the federal government and the state government is kind of echoed in the relationship between the state government and the local government. And there, again, there's almost nothing in the constitution or even in the state constitutions about how local governments should run themselves, right? How they should rule.
0: There is a federalism within the states too, and it's an, but it's a very different one. right? And it's different this way. The, the constitution does not lay out a devolution of responsibility from national to state governments, okay? Rather, it lays out a clear set of responsibilities for each. Now, in the early days of the Republic, and when you're teaching intro to American government, you talk about this in terms of a of a layer cake metaphor. The states and the local and the national government had very distinct responsibilities. They did completely different things. But with the New Deal, the progressive era, this, that, lots of different court decisions, we then substitute that with what we call the marble cake phenomenon. And coming from a family that owned bakery, that owned a bakery, I've always been sympathetic to these. And this is the idea that state and national governments have often are taking on some of the same responsibilities something we saw very clearly of course during the pandemic where you know the CDC is telling us things we have to do and the state governments are telling us things we have to do but but the national government doesn't devolve except through financial arrangements to the state governments to do things they don't have that power but the state governments do devolve power and responsibility to the local governments in fact they create them for the specific purposes of doing specific things so we create; they create school boards to carry out the school function. They create, uh, you know, they create uh, counties to ca- to take care of welfare responsibilities and to take care of a variety of criminal justice and to provide police coverage in unincorporated areas. I could go on and on and on on like that, but it is a very different arrangement because the local governments are entirely creatures of the state.
1: The the one thing that he says that I think is absolutely right is that there's this kind of weird tick in in American culture where we all focus preponderantly at the federal level. We're concerned about what's going on in the Supreme Court, we're concerned what's going on in Congress, and we are inclined to ignore what's going on at the state and local level. And and his argument is, this is crazy because yeah. it's at the local level that um, decisions are made that directly affect our everyday lives, right? In terms of, you know... Crime in terms of when the garbage is picked up, how 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 does the park look? What, how are the schools run? Uh, how how are we handling things like road repair? The things that that occupy our daily lives are operative, and decisions are made with regard to them at the local level. And we don't give that enough credit or enough focus.
0: What I do think is involved in all of that is that this has long been a tenant of the conservative movement to focus on state and local governments to try to push as much policy down there as you can. I mean, this has deep roots. This is the (laughs) anti-federalists. There are deep roots in American politics between those who want to push things up to the national government and to stronger national power. And those who want to push things down because there can be real advantages to having policy made uh, across 50 different states. And anyway, can we talk a little bit about his response to Jenna's question about the uh, case around the independent state legislatures?
1: Yeah, I know that's, a, that's a, a big thing. You know, here is this judge who is from the Federalist Society, which we've talked about before. It is a a conservative group of judges and lawyers who started, I think, in the 70s and who have um, become incredibly powerful in in the recent, you know, in the Trump era. And in terms of, I think there wasn't a... And Trump just said, "Federalist Society, give me a list, and that's who I'm going to look at." And so, uh, and you know, and Sutton is a uh, a member, right? So, so it is, you know, I think relevant to talk about how how he sees these issues in terms of this kind of dynamic between state and federal government.
0: Well, I mean, I think also the the independent state legislatures – and so this is the case that the court decided to uh, the Supreme Court decided to hear more against Harper in the uh, next term and it has to do with the notion of independent state legislatures the reason i thought his answer was interesting and i was glad jenna asked about him is that you know his book is all about <laughs> state constitutions and empowering the state governments and democracy in the states and and the independent state legislature theory would it seems to me throw a lot of the existing power arrangements in the states kind of up in the air because it would essentially say that state legislatures are the final say on issues having to do with federal elections. And according to, you know, some people who are uncomfortable with this case uh, fear that a decision in favor of the independent state legislature. So essentially, as I understand that case, the North Carolina courts stepped in on a redistricting plan put forward by the North Carolina legislature. And they said that based on the North Carolina constitution, that that redistricting plan was in violation of the constitution. The court is stepping in to say, and you know, the, the, the judge referred to this as a tricky issue. I would refer to it more as a utterly profound issue, because what the court is stepping in to decide is can a state court, like the Pennsylvania state court which stepped in in multiple points during the 2020 mm-hmm. election can the state courts step in
1: well so i think it's it's important to place this conversation in the context of you know Sutton is you know a, 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 an originalist right he's looking he says uh, you know like the most famous Representative is is uh, Justice Scalia, and you know the ar- argument is that it's just about the words in the Constitution, and there and are the words in the context
0: Constitu- and the historical context of those words.
1: Right. What I would have really
0: liked to hear more from him, and I, and I say this not because he's a conservative judge, but because he's a scholar of state constitutions, <laughs> is how these de- how a decision like that would would gel with state constitutions because you know like in the north carolina case the state consti- the, the 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 courts in in north carolina are drawing on their state constitution but this is basically saying that state legislatures just have the ultimate say and you know maybe people are being a little bit over the top about this although i don't think so to me this seems like it would completely throw elections into chaos. I
1: think the question is, you know, a similar one with respect to a lot of uh, you know, institutions and organizations in American politics right now. How many of them are conservative in a strict sense in a kind of burkean sense where we want to we are we want to conserve our institutions and and we don't want to be making changes too dramatically because of what we have and what we've developed and and a and a more activist aggressive kind of conservatism that you see in you know i mean a lot of republican politics right now and i would argue that in the interview and in the book sutton kind of um presents himself as the the former that he is concerned about these institutions and you know interested in, in in modifying them to to uh, because they need to work better and they need to work in in ways that reflect the uh, the incentive structure of the people who want to change it when i
0: think about what is the most scary kind of prospect for violence around elections coming up in american politics this is up at the top of the list <laughs> is some state legislatures being able to say Really, going to count the votes from Atlanta because we think it was fraudulent. Right. And we have the power now. Right. We have the power to just say what is and hear your electors. And well, I think these are highly disruptive decisions. And I just didn't hear that in his answers, but it's good that you give him that benefit of the doubt.
1: All that speaks to <laughs> just how timely and important this question is and how fraught these, you know, just the partisanization of every institution in American life is playing out here. And so for that reason, I think it's an incredibly useful book. And it's very clear. I learned so much that I did not know here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's so much more that we could be talking about. Thanks, Jenna, for the interview. And for the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening.
2: Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kubler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit thedemocracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.